The title of today's message is The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 10. This message was given during the morning service on February 26, 2023 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title is entitled The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial. And it's an ongoing sermon title mini-series within a greater series called The Love of Christ. This is the last Sunday of the month series that I'm in. I haven't done this since November 27th, so it's been three months. The reason being in December, the last Sunday of December, we had the Christmas musical. And I had these same notes in front of me the last Sunday of January, ready to preach this sermon last month. We had so many visitors here, a whole crowd, that I set aside my entire sermon series in these notes I currently have in front of me and just decided to give the gospel for 45 minutes. So we're back to it now. Last Sunday of the month series, The Love of Christ. Purposely vague, the love of Christ. What does that mean? My love for Christ or Christ's love for me? Both. Christ first loves us and then we get saved and we love him by being obedient. So what this actually is, is a series that shows me and you, if we love Christ, the marks of godliness that would show that we love Christ. When we love the Lord, you keep his commandments. First John 5 says, if you love the Lord, you keep his commandments. And so this is a subtitled series, the love of Christ would be the marks of godliness. How do I know if I'm godly? And if I am godly, then I love the Lord. And if I don't have the marks of godliness, then I don't love the Lord. This is uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Paul is instructing various age groups within church in chapter 2 of Titus. And he goes from older men to older women to younger women, younger men. And then he comes down at the end of chapter 2 for all groups, besides just those who are slaves, women, and men, to all who are professed believers in the church at Crete. He comes down to verse 11 and talks about how the grace of God saves in verse 11 and sanctifies verses 12 to 15. So to love the Lord is to be godly, synonymous terms. To be godly is to be obedient, synonymous terms. And to be obedient is to manifest the grace of God in one's life. Love, godliness, obedience, grace, living. These are all manifestations of Holiness, sanctification. These are all terms that though they have individual flavors, they basically come from the same group. To be godly, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be obedient, to be living by grace, to love the Lord. These are all terms that really speak to the same issue from just different directions. So the grace of God appears in verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. Salvation is offered to all men, but then the focus comes down to believers in verse 12, instructing us, not all men, there's the distinction, referring to those that are believers. And it says in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, negative first, two things, and then proactive, second, and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So what we have in your note sheet is we finish the first Roman numeral. The love of Christ shows forth towards all humans in a grace invitation to salvation. So we looked at verse 11 in previous last Sundays. And then Roman numeral number two is where we currently are. The love of Christ shows forth towards all believers in a grace command to be sanctified. Grace command to be sanctified. And we find that it starts off with letter A, The love of Christ instructs believers to leave sin. The love of Christ instructs believers to leave sin. It always is in this order. Repent, put off evil, and then put on righteousness. It's always that order in the Bible. Repent, 
and put on righteousness. To be saved, repent, and then receive Christ. I'll remind you of that. If you go back to Matthew, something I've shown you many times. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And look at verse 2. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. As he began preaching, John the Baptist, first word out of his mouth. When he came preaching, first word is what in verse 2? Repent. Christ, first sermon he began. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. As he begins to preach in verse 17, first word out of his mouth, repent. Repent. Mark chapter 6. He sends the disciples out to begin preaching. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. This is the beginning of their ministry. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 8, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. So he's basically created by this lack of clothes and a lack of provisions. He has them on a short-term mission. It's not, this is not some mandate that nobody should ever go to the mission field without, with more than one set of clothes or such nonsense as that. He's, he's forcing them to return sooner. Okay. Verse 10, and he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of their feet for a testimony against them. Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. How much more evidence do we need that the first thing that you and I should say in the gospel is repent? How insidious and how evil it is American evangelists and Christians to not believe or use repentance. Back to Titus chapter 2. When it comes to sanctification, this is exactly what's going on in Titus chapter 2. Instructing us to deny ungodliness, that's repentance. Go back to your note sheet. The love of Christ instructs believers to leave sin. What are the marks of godliness? Well, I've kind of taken this phrase, instructing us to deny ungodliness, and I've broken it up. You can see the first marks of godliness in your note sheet under the green marks of godliness under letter A at the top of the note sheet. Mark number one that we've already learned of godliness. The godly believer loves Bible instruction. Titus 2.12 right there, instructing us. Instruction refers to paidur, to be trained unto a maturity like a child. It always requires the word of God. Colossians chapter 3 tells all believers to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. We're to be instructed, we're to read and study ourselves and apply, and we're to be instructed by teachers. That's what a pastor teacher is in Ephesians 4. He's to equip the saints. There's two ways we're instructed then. It's personal time in the word and it's instruction in a Bible-believing church. A godly believer loves Bible instruction. Again, the American church dropping repentance out of the gospel is heretical. The Bible-believing church in America has dropped a host of teaching services. Sunday nights and so forth are gone. Less Bible teaching in direct counter to what the Bible says that we need to be instructed on a regular basis more and more. A godly person wants more Bible instruction, not less. Such an easy one to discern for yourself. If you're bored with Bible teaching, then you're not godly. It's as simple as that. I mean, uh, Leon walks in and he's got a sermon on his phone. Why is he doing that? Nobody told him to do that. Because he hungers for the word. He hungers for the word. Why? Because he's godly. Nobody had to tell Leon to listen to a sermon on a, his phone. He does that while he's driving, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's the work of God in his life. That's what every believer is who's walking with the Lord. Mark number two. Of godliness. The godly believer loves fellowship in the body of Christ, especially to be instructed. That's the us. This tells us this isn't personal devotional time in verse 12. It's instructing us together. The Spirit of God wants us to gather together. That's why you have the seven churches that Jesus walks among and analyzes in Revelation chapters 1 and 2. And Jesus analyzes the local churches. We have to gather together in fellowship. It's one of the marks 
foundational marks of believers who gather. In Acts chapter 2, we find out that the beginning of the local church is marked by uh, apostles teaching, prayer, communion, and fellowship. So again, godly means I want more fellowship. What is fellowship? In Mark number 2, it's koinonia. It's gathering. It's not come, sit, listen, and leave. That's not fellowship. You can do that in a movie theater. It's come in to sit under the word and then interact with other believers through service, through communication together, prayer together, to help each other to grow. Fellowship is gathering to grow. Our current stop in our series is Mark number 3. A godly believer denies ungodliness and worldly desires when he's instructed in the word. Right there in verse 12, instructing us next is unto denying ungodliness and worldly desires. All of us, in verse 12, us as believers, please mark it well what I was saying in Sunday school, all of us have ungodly traits and worldly lusts. We wouldn't need to deny them if we didn't. You're never going to get rid of marks of ungodliness and worldly desires. What you want is to repent of them so that you can be godly. A godly believer is not one who doesn't have any ungodliness in his life. A godly believer is not one who has no lust issues in his life. A godly believer is one who repents of them. This is basic. So mark number three, the godly believer denies ungodliness and worldly desires when he's instructed in the word. The purpose of Bible instruction is to get us to repent. Notice it says, as your note sheet says, instructing us unto points believers to denial. Instructing us towards this, just like we saw with the salvation gospel message, so it is with sanctification. The primary purpose of Bible teaching in a church is to confront our sin. It points to denial of ungodliness. Number two, under mark number three in your note sheet, it's confrontational and negative. If I am instructing you, to deny ungodliness, I'm confronting. I'm assuming you've got ungodly traits and worldly desires in your life. That's a confrontation. Bible teaching is primarily meant to confront sin in a believer's life in order to get him to renounce it. You can understand then if there are professed believers in rebellion or apostates to get hammered on sin continuously, they would come to resent it. That's the cross of suffering even in a Bible-believing church. I had a, I had a Christian who's been saved for over 50 years, who doesn't go to this church, tell me recently that we're not in persecution in this country. I couldn't believe it. That was astounding. We're not in persecution. We're in persecution in our churches. When you get wickedness in churches and apostates and rebellion, that's persecution. Yesterday was a national day of hate. Did you know that? You know, Nazis and White supremacists went around and attacked synagogues and churches all over the country. I was watching one synagogue letting out, letting out in, a, in a video from yesterday in the news. Jews were pouring out in their cars in L.A. And these neo-Nazis were standing right there screaming and yelling and calling them horse faces. The Jews mocking them, swearing at them. Why, why don't you go get in an oven? We want you back in ovens. We're not in persecution. If the Jews are in persecution, so are the Christians. Do you know why? Because they're the two groups of God's people that Satan hates. Old Testament Jews, New Testament Christians. This is the way it is. It's all over the country by thousands. Synagogues were attacked. Christians were attacked. This is a wicked, wicked nation we're living in. You think we're better than China and Russia? I couldn't believe that this person said we're not under persecution. It was astounding to me. Absolutely astounding. Yes, we are. You confront sin in any context, at work, at home, at play, in the church, you're going to have trouble. Amen? <laughs> I don't know if I should have said amen to that. All right. Well, you did anyways. I got you to say it. Now, as I've tried to warn you many times, we're under Mark 3.2, confrontational negative. Look at point B under number 2. Denials are ne'amai. It means to strongly renounce. We have a different definition for deny. For us, uh, to deny is to not admit something, right? Did you go to the store today? I deny it. That doesn't mean repentance. That means I didn't do it. So it sounds like Mark number 3, if you look at Mark number 3, the godly believer doesn't admit the ungodliness and worldly desires. That's how we, de we define denial as not admitting. 
That's a strange mark of godliness. The godly believer does not admit ungodliness and worldly desires. That's not what this word deny is. Again, it's unfortunate because of our English understanding. The word deny, better word, is to renounce severely. Deny means to renounce something. It says right there in your note sheets. To strongly renounce. It's just another word, our netamai, for repentance. To renounce. Repentance, metanoia, in all its root forms, means to turn and go in another direction. It's also synonymous with forgiveness. Asking forgiveness is to say, I've done wrong. I'm asking you to sweep it under the rug and, and grant me absolution, Lord Jesus, as I turn and repent and severely renounce. They all work together. Forgiveness is how practically repentance works out. Repentance is the direction we go when we renounce sin. And renunciation here is absolutely condemn, condemning our own sinfulness. We're renouncing ourselves, folks. When we repent, we're renouncing ourselves for our sin. And now we're looking at an application of this issue of instruction to deny. Eight essential facts of life concerning Bible instruction and its relationship to sin denial. We've already seen the first four. Fact number one, if a believer cannot win against sins, all Bible instruction should stop. Notice that instruction is meant to cause us to deny ungodliness. So if you ever had the view, the point of application, fact number one is, if you ever had privately the view, it doesn't do any good, I can't win against sin, I'm never going to get victory over sin, well then you should stop sitting under Bible teaching then, if that's true. That's the outcome of such wrong thinking. If we come to a sinful view that we can never win in our war with any sins in our lives, you should stop sitting under the word of God. Because here in verse 12 it says, the instruction is meant to cause us to renounce ungodliness. If you can't renounce ungodliness, then you shouldn't be instructed. I wish believers would be true to their belief system. If in my heart I privately really believe and I've given up completely the idea that I can, I can have any victory over sin, that's ridiculous. I just can't. I fail continuously. I'm never going to have any victory. Why don't they stay true to that? Because if they really believe that, they'd, they'd kiss off sitting under Bible teaching. In fact, that's what happens many times. When somebody's in rebellion and they think that they can never have victory over sin, they stop reading their Bibles and they stop, stop coming to church. Fact number two, if a believer does not need to win against sin, first one is inability to win. This is now choice. Does not need to win against sin and all Bible instruction should stop. Obviously, we've got a problem if we have to be instructed to deny ungodliness. So the believer, the first one says, I can't stop myself. The second believer says, sin's no big problem for me. It really isn't. I don't know what everyone's talking about. I don't have a big problem with sin. Well, then you don't need to be instructed. This looks pretty bad to me. It's instructing us to continuously renounce ungodliness and worldly desires, which means my entire Christian life I need to be sitting under instruction. But if I don't really need to deal with sin because I don't have a big sin problem, then again, why be two-faced about it? If I don't have a real problem with sin, I shouldn't be sitting under Bible teaching. It's a waste of time. Application or fact number three, a believer is in a power encounter when sitting under Bible instruction. All of our messed up thinking, our perspectives that are unbiblical, our sins that we bring in that we haven't repented of, are being confronted by Bible instruction. This is a power encounter. It's very simple. The Spirit works through Bible teaching to confront a sinner, a believer who has the Holy Spirit, who's in some degree blind to their sin and resistant to truth. That's a power encounter. We're not to look for power issues with miracles, tongues, as charismatics would say. This is the real power manifestation. There's power when sin is confronted and people repent. If you want to know whether we are having a manifestation of power in Eastside Bible Church, look for believers because of Bible teaching who are denying ungodliness and worldly desires. That's the evidence and manifestation of true power, first and foremost is massive repentance going on. So you can just ask yourself that question, is that what's going on in our church or not? 
And in fact, number four that we finished back in November, a believer chooses to use or abuse Bible instruction when he sits under teaching. If you're struggling with ungodliness and worldly desires, there is always the potential to either submit to teaching or abuse teaching. There's always that opportunity to use or abuse. How do you use Bible teaching that confronts sin? By submitting, being convicted, and repenting, right? That's how you use it. The premier passage that reminds us how a believer can abuse Bible teaching is 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, turn over there, tells us how to abuse Bible teaching. It's one word, it's powerful, and most Christians do it. Who aren't walking with God, they certainly are doing this. 1 Thessalonians 5, two prohibitive commands. Verse 19, do not quench. Verse 20, do not. Here it is. Here's how you abuse Bible teaching. Do not despise prophetic utterance. Do not despise prophetic utterance. That shows a believer can do it. He's talking to believers. Verse 12 tells us he's talking to born-again Christians. A born-again Christian can actually despise. Don't define that as you would define in the English. Don't do that. Despise is a word, ex thufaneo, and it means to kick something out or treat it as nobody. Kick out or treat as nobody, to treat something as if it is nothing. Much akin to something's on TV and you mute it. That's what despise means. Why did the interpreters use the word despise? There is no greater sin, I think, a believer can commit when taught the word of God than to ignore it. X, the prefix X, Futheneo. X is out. Futheneo is nobody. Out, nobody. Treat it as if it's nothing. To ignore it. It's a mark of ungodliness to ignore Bible teaching. We're all going to do it because we're sinners. But we're talking about consistency and habit. Okay? So that's how you abuse. Going back to fact number four in your note sheet above the dotted line. If you want to know how to abuse the word of God, just ignore it. It doesn't convict. You just listen. Your mind wanders. Not interested, got other things to think about, other things that are more important. That's an abuse of the word of God. So there's this power encounter going on, and there's also the potential for anyone sitting here at any time under the teaching of the word or in any church, there is this great potential to just basically ignore it. No Christian in 1 Thessalonians 5 just gets up and swears against the truth. The worst I ever had as far as outward demonic manifestation against the truth was uh, years ago. Uh, this, uh, there was a mother on the east side, unsaved. She wanted her two sons to brought in to hear truth. This is probably 20, 25, 30 years ago. It was on a Sunday night, and um, she carted these two boys in. Boys, they're in their 20s. And they sat down right over where they are. And uh, they had upside-down crosses tattooed on their foreheads, upside-down. And uh, they were demonic. The mom was demonic, and they were demonic. And I was preaching the word of God, and they were just smirking and laughing the whole time. Smirking and laughing. Nobody comes right out, though, and says, uh, Stop that! I've, I've had it with you! I had two Mormons here years ago. I had their Bibles open and listened to my entire sermon when I was in Daniel. That's how long ago it was. And they stood up afterwards and said, That was a wonderful sermon. Thank you so much. And I said, Well, that's not the reaction I expected from you two. I don't want Satan to tell me my sermon is good. Do you? No. Well, it was an insidious. They were pretending to be angels of light. The, the Mormon church is obsessed with being called evangelical. They want to join our group. And I would say, go ahead, because evangelical doesn't mean anything anyways. Anymore, sadly. So abuse. We don't abuse by yelling out. We abuse by... Oh, were you talking to me? I'm sorry. Just ignore it. Treat it as if it's nothing. Fact number five, going back to Titus 2. Applications on instructing us to deny ungodliness. You can be thankful I don't have hundreds of these. Okay? You'll be very thankful for that. I only have eight. Fact number five, application. Essential facts of life concerning Bible instruction and its relation to repentance. Number five, a godly believer longs 
for sin-confronting Bible instruction. Godly believer longs for sin-confronting Bible instruction. Longs for it. You know what that means? Hungers for it. It is a godly believer's major weapon in killing sin. Next to personal time in the Word, it is second. You have two weapons. You only have two weapons in your life to deal with sin. Not talking about empowerments. You only have one empowerment, two weapons. One empowerment, two weapons. One empowerment is the Spirit. Not your will. To deal with sin, it is not the power of your will plus God's will. It's not a partnership there at all. We have no power, according to 2 Corinthians 13. Believers have no intrinsic power to deal with sin. One empowerment, the Spirit. Two weapons. Both the manifestation of the Word of God. The, the Word is the weapon, but it has to work out. You can't just say the Bible is the weapon against sin. The Bible has to be used, and it's used two ways. Personal appropriation in my own time in the Word, instruction of the Word of God. So a godly believer longs to be confronted by Bible instruction. It is a godly believer's major weapon in killing sin. It's a hunger. We should be hungering for verse 12. My greatest criticism by professed believers over 36 years has been believers who hate sin-confronting sermons. I've been told they've been negative, you're always harping on sin. One notorious Christian who's dead now used to confront me every Sunday. You've stopped preaching and you've gone to meddling, he would say. You've stopped preaching and you've gone to meddling. And every time he said that to me, he had a look of rage on his face. How was I meddling? Confronting sin. He did not like that. Which means he was ungodly. If you don't want to be confronted on your sin, you and I are ungodly. Would you agree with that? First Peter chapter 2, a little repeat from Sunday school. My apologies, but I love a good review. First Peter chapter 2. But we will not fixate on this passage. We'll fixate on another one that talks about this longing. Longing, 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 longing. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. First repent, then apply. Always the way it is. Let me read verse 1 and see if somebody can find out where repentance is in verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Where is repentance in that verse? Putting aside, aorist, middle participle, to reject these things. To reject. Like newborn babies, what's the next word in verse 2? Long. Epipatheo. Strong affection. It's an imperative command. You're commanded to hunger for it. It's kind of an unusual way to put it. It'd be kind of like somebody coming up to me and saying, do you like baseball? And I'd say, no. You like the Cubs? And I'd say, no! I am commanding you to love and long Cubs games. Oh, sure. I'll watch it if I have to. Tie my hands behind my back, prop my eyelids open with toothpicks, and stick a big screen in front of me. Sure, I'll watch it. Being commanded to long in verse 2. Who would command somebody to long? I'm commanding you to have strong affection. Seems like it's supposed to be natural. Like newborn babes. Do you have to command a baby to suck on the bottle? No. So what's the deal here? Why would we be commanded? I don't think the issue is the command trumps the desire. I don't think that. I think that Peter, the Spirit of God, is just telling us how important this is. Yes, you should have a desire for this, but it's more than that. You need to understand that this is an unbreakable, uncompromisable mandate. You have to do this. How do I do that? How do I force myself to long for the word of God? How do I do that? How? Okay, I'm now going to obey the command to have great affection for the Bible. Well, it seems to be wrapped up in verse 1. When you really repent of all your sin, right now one of the volumes in the Puritans that Sue and I read we switch volumes. I think she's got volume two. I've got volume one right now. And of these Puritan saints and what they're writing. And right now, the current dates, they're talking about uh, mortifying the flesh. Puritans were big on mortification. It's a great concept. It's in Colossians 2, by the way. It's a biblical concept. And it's, it's, it's a severe 
absolute repentance. That's what mortification is. It's where you don't, you don't give it any quarter. You don't make any excuses for any of the sins in your life. You don't call them sorries and oops and mistakes. You can't repent of one, as the Puritans would say. You can't repent of one way. You've got ten others here that you refuse to deal with. There's no defensiveness. It's complete putting aside. This is a severe rejection in verse 1. It's mortification is what it is. It's repentance. You know, and, and I think that what we're talking about here is continuous. It's, not a, it's actually not a command in verse 1, putting aside. It's a continuous participle. It's a state of being. As you continue to do this as a life path, you then naturally have affection and longing for the word and a desire to obey the word. Like newborn babes. Notice, you're longing for the pure milk of the word. So that by it you may grow. You can't grow without the word. Remember, one empowerment, two appropriations. Got that? One empowerment, spirit of God, two appropriations. The word of God is appropriated through read, study, interpret, apply, personally. And secondly, the instruction of the word of God. We're to be instructed. And that's the only way to grow. You can't grow any other way. How many Christians have I had le left here? Oh, why are you leaving? You're not coming, I'm not coming back. Why? Well, let's get the list out. Nobody visited me. Nobody called me. Nobody says hi to me at church. Church is too small. Seats are uncomfortable. Uh, it's too hot in here. Too much Bible teaching. We need more music. Music's too old. I need music. Where is all that in verse 2? What causes you to grow in your salvation. Pure milk of the word. That's it. A lot of Christians, young people are notorious for this, not present company excluded. A lot of young people leave churches like this because they're looking for something more. There is nothing more. You can search from one end of the universe to the other, get on a Starship Enterprise and go flying away. You're not going to find anywhere where Christianity operates any different from the time of the apostles to the time of the rapture, this is the only way to grow. So that, notice verse 2, by it you may grow. That's it. It. Nothing else. The word. Longing. Hunger. This is the way you can tell whether you're godly or not. Are you godly? Do you long for sin-confronting Bible instruction? Are you tired of it? The day you should be tired of negative Bible sin-confronting Bible instruction is the day you stop having a problem with sin. So when I've had people in the past say, I'm tired of all the negativity, I'm tired of the confrontation of sin, I have to assume, well, they no longer have a problem with sin then. I do. I almost did it again. Can you believe it? I don't think I'm ever going to keep this thing up here again. I knocked it completely over in Sunday school. There goes all my notes. Yikes. All the pages out of order. You stay right there. I'm going to personify it now. It's your fault you did this. Coffee cup. Now don't you do that again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And here we're going to park longer for the rest of the sermon. Familiar passage, yes. Familiar passage. But maybe I can dig some truths out of it that you haven't noticed before, possibly. Hebrews 5.14, talking about longing. I'm going to read it transliterated from the Greek as you follow verse 14. The American Standard says, Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Here's how it reads in the Greek, in the Greek grammatical construct. For the mature, however, but is solid food. For the mature is solid food. The ones, through constant use, senses training, having for distinguishing good, both even, both good and evil. For mature, however, but is solid food. Maturity is mentioned first. In the New American Standard, verse 14, maturity is word number seven. That misses the point. I know it's good English. The subject is mature. Please, please understand something here. Number one in your note sheet. The first word in the Greek is mature. 
for emphasis. Who wants solid food? Only the mature, not all believers. Only the mature. That's it, just the mature. So when you have a bunch of people in churches that don't want the word of God, they're not mature, they're not godly. What is a mature Christian? Teleos, letter A under point one. Complete, full grown of age. Mature is spiritually complete, full grown of age. What does that mean? Godly, walking in sanctification, repenting of sin, walking in grace, loving Christ, obedient, knowing the truth. These are all things you could write down under this maturity. Godly, walking in by the Spirit, obedient, deeply knowledgeable of the truth. So only the mature partake of solid food. Notice, solid food is for, and we could really interpret it as for only the mature. So who's the only one that's going to grow in a church? Who's the only one that's going to want sin-confronting Bible teaching? Godly, I'm sure. So we could go through our directory if we wanted to, and you just could go down. Maybe you could make this uh, your application this afternoon. Take the church directory just privately by yourself without talking about other people to other people, just be yourself and go down through the list. Who would you consider a godly, mature believer in this church? Eliminate church attendance. That has nothing to do with it. Catholics go to church. So you've got to go back to the marks of godliness. They're repentant of sin. They're prayer warriors. They serve with their gifts. They walk by the Spirit. They're humble. They admit their sin. They're not defensive. So forth. Go through the directory. Go from A to Z. How many people would you find in this church that you think would be mature, godly? Only they, whoever you choose, in your opinion, that you consider as mature and godly, only they want sin-confronting Bible instruction. If that's not a majority of the people in our church, then the majority are resistant to it and don't like it. That's a given. Solid food is only for the mature. So a godly Christian then is marked by the things in this verse. Notice that the intake of deep Bible teaching has nothing to do with education in this verse what is the key to intaking solid food? Education? No, what? Spiritual maturity. The immature believer is up in verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11 of Hebrews. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Dull of hearing. Since you become dull of hearing, that's the immature believer. The word dull is... Nathros, sluggish, bored, listless, lazy. This is a spiritual problem. It is not the problem of the teacher who creates dullness of hearing. It comes from the heart. Dullness or slothfulness or lack of interest in the truth is an internal thing that is manifested, not caused by an ex external force. It is a sin condition of backsliding and godlessness. Lazy, sluggish, bored, listless. That's what that word means. Dull of hearing means they can't, they, they have no interest in it. It just bounces off, bounces off, bounces off. No interest whatsoever. You can't preach hunger for the word of God into somebody's heart. Spirit has to confront them on their sin to repent, and then they become longing after that, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The reason why somebody is like in verse 11 They've become dull of hearing. They weren't always that way. They became that way. The reason why they are like that is they're not dealing with sin. This is why individuals don't listen to counsel, don't listen to admonishment. This is why Christians cannot be confronted. This is why Christians get angry at teaching that is sin confrontation because they become dull of hearing. They're blind. Another word for that is blindness. Sluggish. Literally, the word dull means blunt. It's like trying to drill a hole with a round drill bit at the end. Can't do it. One of the evidences that individuals aren't mature is verse 12. They ought to be teachers at this time. All, all Christians should be teaching the word of God. Boy, there's a shock. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, who's you? All believers. All believers should be teaching. How tragic that just like then, so today, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles, the warnings of God, oracles, or strong warnings. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Uses the milk analogy like 1 Peter 2, but the, the definition and use of it is different. Here, milk represents baby food, baby doctrines, doctrines that teach simple stuff that we should know already. Milk back in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, is referring to the hunger that a baby has for milk. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. This is why uh, slothful, godless, professing believers who don't know the Bible, they just, the sermons are just like, it's way over their heads. It's not an intellectual thing, it's a mature, godless issue. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't even know what he's talking about. They're not accustomed to the word of righteousness there. They're ignorant. Not accustomed is really a Greek word for ignorance. They have no contact with deep study of the Bible, so when they sit under deep sermons, it means absolutely nothing to them. This is the warfare that goes on under the teaching of the Word of God. This is massive spiritual warfare. Only the mature, then, longs for truth. We see that letter A, teleos. Letter B, under point number one, he seeks after solid food. Solid, that which is firm, stable, will not budge. Solid, this is something that is really going to help me to grow. Seeks after solid. What is firm? Refers to good Bible intake. That's what's solid. Not teaching with errors. Food obviously refers to the Bible as defined in verse 12. Should be teachers of the word. And then it says there, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It's referring to the word of God deeply taught. Teaching always refers to the word of God. So the solid food here is the deep truth of the word of God. Especially the confrontation of evil. The most godly of believers need their sin confronted. Number two on the back side. The mature are godly because of constant practice. Constant training. Literally, the ones through constant use. For the mature, however, is solid food, is for them. The ones through constant use. How long should I spend in the Word? How often should I be in the Word and under instruction? Constantly. That's that word practice. Practicing continuously. Constant use. Hexis. The habit of continual practice. It's present active indicative. This should be constant. Instruction. Bible teaching. Not just on Sundays. During the week. Like Leon. While driving. Intake. Intake. We have to have it. Verse 14. The godly is constantly using, practicing the word of God. Not just listening, using it. Practice refers to the issue of appropriating it into your life. Making measurable responses of obedience. Letter B. One will only do this if one is spiritually mature. Bible ignorant believers are in rebellion. They don't want deep things of the word of God. They don't want it. It bores them. It makes no sense to them. You can't stop someone from being dull of hearing. It's impossible. If they don't deal with their sin, they will not be open to truth. If they don't deal with their sin, they will not be open to truth. We can't harass people into being repentant. We can't harass them into obeying the truth. They either will or they won't. And then they will face judgment on one day. We're not the ones to be the judge. God is. All we can do is give out truth and call to believers, to repent and to obey the word, but we can't make them do it. Letter C, only the mature believer knows the horrific conflict with sin that every believer has. Only the mature believer knows the horrific conflict with sin that every believer has. Only the mature knows this. That's why he constantly has to be in the word. Constantly has to be in the word. He desperately needs help. This constant practice in verse 14 speaks to desperation. Write it down under letter C. Desperation. It's frightening what my sin capacity is in yours. The godly believer is the only one who knows that. The ungodly believer has no concept of this. Completely dull of hearing in verse 11. 
sitting under truth, dull of hearing. Such individuals see no war going on in their lives. They're blind to the truth. They trust themselves. The godly believer doesn't trust himself. He trusts the word of God. Desperation. Fear, under letter C. I need practice out of fear. Practice out of fear. Two examples of fear that require practice. One is I've told you about my shoulder. I messed it up sleeping on it on November 20th. <laughs> Four months later, yay, it's still bad. I fear. What do I fear? I fear it freezing up. So I have to practice moving it. I've gone from weights, 100-pound weights that I use to just now my practice is this. I've got to get it moving. I can do it forward, but I can't do it laterally. The rotator cuff is shot. So I have to balance between moving that doesn't damage and moving that helps. Why? Because I'm afraid of freezing up. That's what this practice is. I'm, I'm desperate. I've got to have the truth because I'm walking in the Spirit. I know. I know what I'm capable of. Freezing up. Second illustration and conclusion. I've been reading two history books on the disarming of UXBs in Great Britain during the horrible um, blitzkrieg of bombs dropped on London and Great Britain during World War II. UXBs are unexploded bombs, not duds. It's a misnomer. The Germans actually, maybe one-tenth of their bombs, they purposely had them delayed destruction. They would hit and land and bury themselves into buildings and then they just sit there ticking. And then when everyone thought it was a dud, they came in and then it exploded and wreaked havoc. This is through the horrible bombing of London and Great Britain. Up until World War II, there was no military branch in the military of Great Britain or the U.S. devoted to disarming unexploded bombs. The Germans rained thousands of these bombs down on England and thousands didn't explode. Again, they weren't duds. They were unexploded and they were live. The key to disarming them was the fuse and no one knew how to get to, at the fuses. No one. So there were no volunteers. The British Army just said, okay, you're, you're on the UXP squad, UXP. And they all knew it was a death sentence, these young men. They had no idea how to disarm them. So they start trying to pull one out, they'd explode. So the next group knew that that wasn't the way to get it out. So then they rotated the, the locking ring and they got that off and they didn't die so now we have success. Take the locking ring off first. And then they started to pull it out and boom, they died instantly, the thing exploded because um, there was a timer mechanism with some mercury in it and if that was jiggled it would explode after the timer stopped. And so then they attached strings to the fuses and then they'd take the strings out of the pit and go 100 miles or 100 yards away and then they'd pull the fuse out and if it didn't explode, hey, this is one that we'll categorize as this. And so time and time again, hundreds and hundreds of men died. They were desperate to stop these bombs. They'd risk their own lives to do it. Trial and error was the only way the British learned. Error meant death. And those early recruits knew that they were as good as dead. Over time, expertise was gained understanding the danger through practice. Understanding the danger through practice. So new recruits would come along and they would study the process of removal with passion. They learned that they had to use stethoscopes to put on the bomb to listen for a clock ticking. Practice gave them that expertise. Then they had to drill holes. On some, they were so complex from Germany, they had to drill a hole and make sure that the ticker wasn't going when they were drilling it or it would blow up. Some were above subway systems in London, and this was life or death for everybody. And then they'd pump into the bomb massive, massive steam, and it would melt and, and liquefy the TNT that was inside of it. It would pour out. Desperation. One step wrong, they were dead. If only we saw the practice of the word as that. We was such laissez-faire, as the French would say. Just calmness and relaxation. Get into the word and sit under the word. Because after all, at the end of the day, it's not such a big deal, the struggles that we have with sin. Our sin nature is a bomb. Always there and operating in your mind, the sin nature. And the only way to have success and not be killed by the UXB of your sin nature 
is practice the word. Practice it. Understand. Figure out, why do I need wisdom concerning dealing with sin? What does repentance really mean? Why do I have to understand the constant process of repetitive repenting and yet still struggling? When do I repent and struggle and be godly and when am I godless? And we study trial and error with the word over and over again and ask God for empowerment to give us victory. I don't know why we don't study God's word with that passion. We're dull of hearing. Our sin isn't any big deal. It's extreme to call our sin nature an unexploded bomb. We're all a half step away from rebellion. Just a half step. Because we do not believe there's a bomb ready to go off in our lives called sin that can destroy us. We deny the warnings of Scripture. How can a believer think that sin is no big deal when the curse of the first chapters of Genesis, where sin was born, caused the fall of all mankind? And that's a sin in our minds. All the way to the last chapter of Revelation, when a final curse is pronounced on mankind for horrific sin. How can we think sin is no big deal when it sends every human to hell forever? One sin, hell forever. One sin causes hell forever. How can professed believers not see the ultimate sin as battle is with their sin? How can they not see that? Because they're playing with bombs. And they don't think the bombs will go off. The bombs do go off. There's wreckage everywhere in the church, in the body of Christ. doesn't matter how long we've been saved. Shipwrecking occurs if we don't get vigilant with our sin. And that's why, fact number five, we long. We long. We'll come back next time, next month, to point number three in your note sheet. We want to talk about how do I get my senses trained. That's kind of an odd statement right there. Have their senses trained. We need to figure that out next time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Forgive us for taking our sin lightly as a bomb that needs to be diffused and we'll play around with it and kick it, throw it off a ledge. Who cares if it explodes? I'm all right. Awaken us, revive us so that we don't see ourselves dull of hearing, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.